All right, so thanks for letting me speak to you guys tonight. I've um, shared a similar talk to our counselors here at Grace a few years ago, and they thought it was helpful and thought it would be something that maybe you guys would um, find helpful as well. So I was going to say, feel free to yell out questions, but this is a little bit bigger group than I expected, so maybe at the end we'll have some time and, and see how that goes. Uh, my wife, Holly, we've been married for 22 years and our five kids. Um, I'm from Tennessee and did my training at the University of Tennessee. We came to Cincinnati uh, years ago for my internal medicine and pediatric training up at the University of Cincinnati and uh, Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. I've been in practice um, since 2001. Uh, it started with one other partner, saw three patients on my first day. And uh, now we have seven partners in our office, and we're part of a larger group here in northern Kentucky area called St. Elizabeth Physicians. Um, I've been at Grace since 2005, and um, yeah, we're busy homeschooling our kids. I say we. My wife is busy homeschooling our kids. I, I can't take any credit in that. She's, she's wonderful if you know her. And I have um, served as the medical liaison here. If folks have a question um, in regards to medicine or how it may work in the medical field, um, people felt free to call me, and I, I do still welcome that. Let's see if I'm... Am I aiming this way, guys? There we go. All right. Am I, maybe it's going to be you guys that just see me doing it. Then. So a little bit about what I want to share that I do do and some things that, that I won't be doing. So I see folks of all ages, uh, from kids up to... Uh, I've got a couple that are above 100. Um, the medications we will talk about tonight, I, um, I use... And so tonight's really not going to be talking about whether it's good to use medicine or not or whether we believe that that's the case, but I know that you guys are going to encounter many of your counselees who may be on medication, so I want to at least talk about them so that you can be prepared on what they might be experiencing or side effects that they might have or what to expect from the medications in general. Um, I do see both believers and non-believers. I wish I could tell you that I, I witness to every patient who comes in. I don't. Um, I wish I had that time. I wish I had that conviction to do more of that. Um, but those that are believers, when we're talking about uh, mental health issues, we do go into some more heart issues and, and talk on a little bit different level. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And I have a lot of opinions, um, as we all do. But I don't want you to walk away thinking things that I say are definitely law. There are things definitely based in science. But a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight has just kind of been my experience in uh, 17, 18 years of practice and what I've seen. Um, again, I don't claim to be an expert. Um, I don't full, uh, hold full understanding of these medications, side effects, and um, usages. And again, just walking away from tonight with a little bit of extra background that I think will help you in your counseling. So a general caution. And I say this because I think it's important when it comes to, there we go, um, as believers, when we hear a sermon or we read a book, um, we hear something spiritual, you know, as believing people, we have history of our time in the Word, the Holy Spirit, um, knowledge that we've gained from people that have taught us. To be able to hear something spiritually, kind of judge for, you know, what is good about this, what is true about this, and we could take away what is good, and we can say, no, I don't, I don't necessarily believe with that. I think when it comes to something uh, psychological... I'm not having much luck here. There we go. <laughs> Pray for the pointer. Um, when you hear something medical, I just an, a, a caution to you. Things that are medical, psychological, since we don't have that background, well, 
since you don't have that background of, of years and years of study and psychology and counseling and that sort of stuff, to take everything you hear as gospel is one side of the ditch I, I want you to be careful of, or the other is not to believe any of it. So I think, you know, just trying to be aware that not everything we hear is going to be gospel truth, and that I don't want you to be completely skeptical about everything as well. I think sometimes we can fall on either side of those. All right, so what I want to do tonight, let's see, we've gone a little bit forward there. There we go. Is to give you some information about medications that you might encounter, um, as well as potential side effects of these medicines. And again, I'm not advocating for or against meds, just hoping that you guys will have a greater knowledge when you're counseling. I think a lot of information is good. The more, the better. Um, so what could a counselee have been told by his provider? I think there's, you know, that's the, the big... The black box you may or may not know what happened in that counseling room. Um, When a provider diagnoses someone with X diagnosis, what really did that mean to them? What does it mean to your counselee? Are there side effects again uh, to the medications? And yes, there are, and I think it's important for you to know them. And maybe your counselee's come to you and said, hey, I'm ready to stop medication. I think it's time, um, or I did stop my medication. Um, And what is your role there? Is there um, some guidance you might be able to give them or not? So some of the things that, uh, phrases that we've heard in the past, you know, you might have heard people say, I've had a chemical imbalance. That's a bit of an antiquated term. We don't use that much. It really came from dealing with neurotransmitters and serotonin and norepinephrine, what we're going to talk about, that some people felt, you know what, you have a chemical imbalance. We don't really use that term anymore, but it, it really probably isn't very accurate. Um, but you'll see a little bit um, down the road why people might have used that term. Your illness is all medical. You know, that, now, don't, the pervasive nature of sin has affected everything. The fall has affected everything. There is a place for sick brain, I think. But I don't think that everything in a depression and an anxious world is all medical, all genetic. Okay? And that's kind of where you guys are and where you come into play. Um, they might have been told they're bipolar. That diagnosis, I will tell you, is often overused but when it's real, it's a big deal. So if you hear somebody say that they have been diagnosed with bipolar, that they've had manic episodes, where that's, you need to you know, raise up the flag a little bit. There's a caution there. That, that can be a very big deal. Manic, manic people can go on to psychosis. Um, they have you know, go off to the White House to try to talk to the president. They get very hyper-religious which is very hard in a spiritually setting because, you know, we're spiritual people, but they can get ultra, ultra hyper-religious, hypersexual. They spend a lot of money. Um, they go in debt. They don't sleep. You know, they, for two hours at night, that's all they get. So if somebody's telling you, again, they've been diagnosed with bipolar space, but pay special attention. Schizophrenia as well. I think that's a sick brain issue. I don't know if you guys have ever met anybody who's got schizophrenia. It's noticeable. That's people that are um, hearing delusions, um, seeing delusions, hallucinations. It's, it's, it's pretty intense if you see it. There's a lot of personality disorders people may have been talked about, um, been told that they have. These are tough because this is not where medication works. Personality disorders like borderline personality, that's the person, they love you. And the next week you don't know what you did, but they hate you. Um, and so it's this, you don't know which person you're going to get. Um, there's the antisocial personality disorder. That's you know pretty self-explained. The narcissist who just Really, everything is all about them. They love themselves, and they don't recognize that they love themselves all the time, but everything tends to be about them. Um, And then the histrionic is just the very emotional. Everything's always to the extreme. 
So I'm going to throw a couple cases up here. And if we have some time, I'm going to actually a little bit later have you, because this worked well when I've done this before, we're just going to have you turn to your neighbor and talk for a minute or two. But you're going to see these now, and I want you to just remember a little bit of them, and then we'll come back to them. So case one, Mary's 44, married. She's a mother of three. She's dealt with depression on and off since the birth of her last two children and has been on Prozac for four years now. She's a believer, has a strong marriage with her husband, Steve, and has been in counseling with you for several months. She is doing much better, and at a recent visit with her medical provider, they discuss possibly going off medication. Mary is fearful of going off meds, despite the permission and encouragement of her physician. How do you counsel her? What heart issues do you address? Case two, Ron's 32, single, works for Toyota. For as long as he can remember, he has struggled with anxiety. He is a newer believer, and you have only been counseling him for the past three weeks. Ron states that he struggles with being able to turn off his brain, particularly at night. He used to drink every night to try and get himself to sleep, but became convicted about this and stopped. His physician has prescribed him Xanax to take as needed. Initially, he was taking it every few days, but now has been taking it up to three times a day. He states that it really helps him relax. He looks pretty droopy-eyed tonight and almost nods off a couple times. His speech is slow in response. He drove himself to see you tonight. What do you address? Where in scripture do you take him? And lastly, Shelley is 52, a recent divorcee, and has been in counseling with you for the past four months. After a rocky marriage of 24 years, her adulterous, unbelieving husband left her. She's been struggling with relentless fatigue and all-over body pain for 15 years. She carries a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and finds it hard to even get out of bed in the morning. Much of your counseling time in the past seems to turn towards her various physical complaints Yet when you try to challenge her with new ideas, homework, and taking the focus away from her problems, she politely dismisses you by stating that she has a medical condition that you could never understand. How do you counsel her? So we'll talk a little bit more about these later if we have time. But I want you to think, these are those, those real-life situations that, you know, I know you guys have seen probably very similar things if you're counseling. So depression, what do you think of? What does it look like? Just one word, throw them out there. Sad. Debilitated, exhausted, hopeless, hopeless. daily, daily, dark. dark. I heard something up there. Withdrawn. Withdrawn. Yeah. Anything else? Crazy. Crazy? Did you say? Okay. Yeah. You didn't say that. Yes, you did. Okay. <laughs> I would think you said that. Okay. So as Dr. Somerville kind of pointed out earlier, the DSM criteria, you know, the DSM manual that a lot of the mental health diagnoses are made. So I know that's fine print. Oh, and by the way, I didn't mention this. In your handout is what I really want you to take away. So I think you can use that as a resource. Um, There are medications listed in there with common side effects, some helpful points of view, um, some just helpful reminders, and just stow it away somewhere. But that's really what I want you to take away. I didn't... Um, so I, did, I, want, I meant to say that, and that's what I, I didn't put all of this information in there, but a lot of this you can just find on your own. But these are the things I want you to take away with you so for the future that you can just file away in a file. So yes, two weeks, at least two weeks of feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. Um, and this is, again, a change from somebody's baseline. So it's not like they're always just kind of uh, a little bit down. This is a, a change from where they were, and that it impairs them either socially occupationally, educationally, so in their job, in their home life. It's pretty pervasive across all places. 
And they have to have, as Dr. Somerville was talking about, five of those nine symptoms. And it's very fascinating when you're in the exam room and you're talking to a patient and you ask them, so are you feeling guilty? And they're like, yes. Like, are you feeling worthless as well? I, I am. Have you had changes in sleep? I, I did. So these symptoms all are very common and they feel like you're reading their book sometimes. But the five of the nine symptoms um, decrease interest in pleasure or most activities of the day. I just don't enjoy things anymore. I have no pleasure. I used to like to go fishing and now I just sit around at home. Um, weight changes is a decrease in weight, but we can also see people that overeat as a sign as well. Um, changes in sleep, they can either sleep too much or they sleep too little. Commonly, they'll be very sleepy, but not sleeping. Okay? Um, fatigue, they just feel really drained, no energy. Uh, they feel guilty and worthless, and oftentimes don't know why they feel that way, but that is a common feeling. Um, concentration, diminished. They really have a hard time focusing on anything. They're very indecisive. And then, as Dr. Somerville mentioned, the suicidal thoughts, whether they have a plan or not, they dwell on thoughts of suicide. So we're going to a little biochemistry. That was my major. Don't be afraid. This is a picture of a nerve cell called a neuron because we're going to talk a little bit about how these medications work, the science behind the medications that we use, just a little. So that is a neuron, which is a nerve cell, communicating with another neuron. So you got the top communicating with the bottom. If you kind of see the little green um, rows in between, that, that space in between those two cells is called the synapse. Okay? So one nerve is communicating with the other nerve by throwing out these things called neurotransmitters. Okay? They're released from the first cell, and they go down to the second cell, and the second cell picks up the neurotransmitters and moves on and communicates. Okay? What happens, though, when those neurotransmitters come out of the first cell into the space that first cell sucks some of them back up, okay? The second cell's picking some up as well, but the first one's sucking it back up. So what the medications do, particularly the ones we're going to talk about tonight, they actually block that reuptake of those neurotransmitters, okay? So there's more neurotransmitters in that synaptic space where the, the green things receive the neurotransmitters and they move on, so there's more of that available. So the first one we're going to talk about is uh, serotonin. I think you guys have probably all heard about serotonin. Um, it's an important chemical or neurotransmitter in the human body. It's believed to help regulate mood, social behavior, appetite, digestion, sleep, memory, sexual desire, and function. So if you think about the definition of depression, you can see maybe serotonin has something to do with depression, maybe. Um, there may be a link between serotonin and depression. If so, it's unclear whether the low serotonin levels contribute to the depression or if the depression falls, um, causes a fall in serotonin levels. So it's chicken or the egg. It used to have thought, oh, this is a chemical imbalance. You have a deficiency of serotonin, therefore you are depressed. We don't know that. It's basically when people are depressed, oftentimes there is decreased serotonin levels. And is that cause or effect is the big question. Um, drugs that alter serotonin levels are used to treat depression and anxiety. We'll talk about those. But other natural ways to increase serotonin are light. So we see a lot of depression and really uh, sometimes the more north you get and it's very dark in the winter. Um, light boxes people will have at home to kind of increase their serotonin levels. Exercise, diet. I think you guys as counselors, I'm hoping you're making sure your counselees are um, attacking their lifestyle in a positive direction in that way as well, because I think it's important. Second uh, neurotransmitter, and the only of the two we're going to talk about, there is dopamine as well, which is kind of the pleasure center. It's the Pavlov's dog, you know. 
uh, keep getting reward. Um, norepinephrine is like serotonin, an important chemical, again, a neurotransmitter, as well as hormone in the human body. It's mainly stored in the neurons, which are the nerve cells, of the sympathetic nervous system. But there's also some that are stored right above the kidneys in these glands called the adrenal glands. Um, as a hormone, norepinephrine is released into the bloodstream by the adrenal glands and works alongside adrenaline or an epinephrine and give the body that sudden energy in times of stress. So that fight or flight response, that's the norepinephrine and epinephrine that are being released. So when you get freaked out by the loud noise and you start sweating and your eyes, you know, that's the norepinephrine epinephrine. As a neurotransmitter in the brain, norepinephrine passes nerve impulses from one neuron to the next and is thought to increase attentiveness and energy. So if we go back to our depression diagnosis, attentiveness and energy. So you can imagine why maybe drugs that raise the levels of norepinephrine can help in that depressive realm. So let's talk a little bit in general on antidepressant medications. I know in some of your probably other years you've talked about the placebo effect, particularly in the, on the foundations. Um, as a general rule, it was felt that placebo effect was about a third. So what that means, if you took a hundred folks and you said, we're going to split them into 50-50 and we're going to try to match them up as best we can. This is what they did in studies. And they said, we're going to give group A that are matched up to be just like group B as best we can, sugar pill. And we're going to give group B medication. The person who's giving them the meds doesn't know what they're giving them. In general, in the past, it was thought to be about a third of the people would have benefit in depression with sugar pill because they thought they were going to get better. It's pretty powerful. And around two-thirds of people got better with the medication. That was kind of the general rule if you look at all the studies and you average it out. More recent studies really suggest that those numbers may actually be a little closer together, so there may actually be a little bit more placebo effect than we think and a little bit less for the medication, but there is some benefit to the medication. Clinically, anecdotally, from what I feel, I feel like there is, um, and that's what I've seen in my practice. But, I mean, I think these are important numbers. Now, it's not ethical that we give people sugar pills. We don't, we don't do that. But, you know, sometimes you'd like to, but you think, yeah. So a few things about uh, these meds as well. It's important when, if your counselee comes to you and says, I got put on Lexapro this week and I'm feeling no different. They shouldn't. It takes several weeks for these medications to build up in their body and to take effect. Um, there's a blood level thing that kind of happens and a transition of what's going on in those cells that happens. So I tell people, look, you may expect to feel a difference in about one to two weeks and a major benefit in about four to six weeks. So that's the expectation. I tell them I, my follow-up with them is usually around four to five weeks after I've started a medication. Um, similarly, when they go down on many of the antidepressants, we like to taper them down. Because if you quit cold turkey, sometimes it can cause some side effects, which we'll talk about in a bit. The other thing that I think is important, and I know um, we always talk about, is getting, a, at least at some point, it's probably good to get a physical exam and get some blood work done. Just for the things, and honestly, I rarely see when somebody seems very depressed that any of these things are actually there. But the profoundly hypothyroid or underactive thyroid person um, can, be, can appear depressed. The anemic person can be very fatigued. People that have kidney or liver disease can feel just very wiped out. And, you know, when you feel wiped out, you just don't feel good. So it's good, I think, to have that done. I would, you know, if, one thing to maybe talk to your counselors about, have you seen your doctor and had a physical? So the, the most common medications that are used are the SSRI. So that's selective serotonin 
reuptake inhibitors. So those are those things where, again, that little space with the synapse, these are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, meaning we're blocking the amount that that first cell's being able to suck back up with the serotonin. So we're blocking that, and that's what these medications are doing. So they're allowing more serotonin to be available in the brain to communicate from one cell to the next. They create a sense of well-being in studies. Um, again, it takes weeks to get in and weeks to get out of your system. I'll have patients that are doing well, and they come off their medication, and they think, oh, I've done so great, it's been five days, and they'll come back to me in four to six weeks later and say, ooh, I'm not doing as well as I thought. And again, just those blood levels and the effects have to kind of ramp down as well. They aren't addictive, per se, but... There is a withdrawal of sorts that can happen if you quit cold turkey. People describe um, a spacey feeling, kind of a dizzy, off balance, a little sweaty, uh, and sometimes some nausea. So if somebody comes in, and particularly if they're on a higher dose and they stop right away, that might be what they're experiencing. It's not life-threatening, it's just it's uncomfortable. So the ones that you've probably heard of, the tops, uh, one, two, three, four, five, five or six are the ones that we'll talk about and the ones that are most common. Prozac, um, that's been around a long time, tends to be a bit more activating. Paxil, sertraline, which is Zoloft, Celexa, Lexpro. So this is in your handout. This is something that you can refer to later. I'm going to go into those a little bit more in depth. And the ones on the bottom, um, Luvox, Vibrid, uh, Trintelex, we don't see a lot. I'll mention them briefly, but in case you see that with some of the folks you're taking care of. So what are some side effects of these medications? I think that's important. Nausea, queasiness, fatigue drowsiness. Now that's hard because what's the depressed person? Fatigued, <laughs> drowsy. So you give them this medication. Um, so there is always that potential. The good thing is most of the time these symptoms are very transient. Last three to four days on the newer medications. So they're not going to feel that for very long. So I tell people, look, you may have a little bit of headache, a little bit of nausea, um, a little bit of fatigue that should go away in a few days. Some weight changes, that's a biggie. Especially some of the older versions, there was some weight gain, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, is anybody 18 or under? I don't want to get too personal, but I think this is important. There are sexual side effects with these medications, and I think you need to know that, particularly if you're dealing with families and relationship and couples. Okay? These can decrease. And these, these, I do tell my patients this, and I do see this quite a bit. It can decrease desire. Okay, so you got a depressed person who isn't very desirous anyway, and you put them on a medication that makes them even more so. But I like to talk to that couple about that because sometimes they're like, look, great, if this will help, you know, we'll, we'll go through that season if we need to. It can also delay the ability to reach climax for both men and women. So I always tell my patients when I start that as well. And then it can have some function problems for men. Dry mouth. Uh, as many medications, anything you see on TV that you know, you'd never take because of the list of side effects, uh, dry mouth, restlessness, and agitation. So let's start with the oldest um, and actually very good drug, Prozac or fluoxetine. It's been out the longest. Um, I say that it's somewhat activating. So some of these meds kind of bring people a little bit down. Some people tend to bring people a little bit up. And I think of Prozac as being a little bit more activating and bringing people up. It, it does have a, what's called a long half-life. So if you take this medication, it'll stay in your system a while. Okay? So people could take this medicine if they're weaning it down. We'll have them take it every other day because it just stays in there. And that's how we kind of wean it down because it comes in capsules. So we can't really split them in half. It's cheap. It often gets a bad rap, I think, just because it's been around the longest. 
Um, and the weight can go either way. I tend to think of it as people losing a little bit, little bit of weight with it, uh, but you can gain weight as well. Uh, Zoloft, which is sertraline, is the name we, we use now. It's been out a long time as well. It's been considered very safe. It's been used in pregnant women, breastfeeding women. Oftentimes in the past, if they were on any of these other medications, they would be changed to Zoloft because of its safety profile. Um, it's considered weight neutral. There are many doses. So you start people on 25 or 50, and you can go all the way up to 200. Some, pe- some physicians like that, that they can have several doses. Some think it's not very needed, but um, people choose it for different reasons. It is inexpensive as well. Most all of these have gone generic and are quite cheap. Um, Paxil, sedating. So this is for my kind of jittery, anxious person. That's where I think of this medication. Um, thin people, because people do gain weight with it, uh, can gain weight with it. Uh, and it's, again, helpful on that anxiety end. And then the next one, um, this is where I probably go to the most if I were choosing Celexa and Lexapro. If any of you chemistry people out there remember what isomers are, isomers are mirror images of the same molecule or chemical. So what they found on some of these drugs, if anybody, everybody would take Prilosec. Yes, so Prilosec um, came out with its next generation. That was Nexium because they found out if we take out this, this is the active part. And we can lower the dose, and we we can, and we'll have less side effects. So what Celexa is is the parent product. Lexapro is the daughter product. So it's the same chemical, um, but it's weight neutral, middle of the road, minimal side effects. That's why I like it. Um, tends to, tended to be more expensive until it became generic, and now you can get it very cheap as well. So you'll probably see, honestly, if you have people that come to you for counseling that are on medication on an SSRI, it's probably going to be. Zoloft or Lexapro. That's just kind of what's most often used now. The next class is this uh, serotonin norepinephrine. If you remember norepinephrine, more energy, more focus. Um, So the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. This is a different class. There's only three of those. Um, The first one's Effexor. second one's Pristique. Again, that same isomer chemistry. The uh, Effexor is the parent product. Pristique is the, is the daughter product when they take out the inactive ingredient and just leave the active part. And that was good. Effects are tend to have some side effects that we'll talk about. And then Cymbalta, which um, is kind of newer, used for a lot of other things. So what are the side effects with the SNRIs? Nausea, decreased appetite, GI side effects. Those are more in this class than they were in the SSRIs. So particularly in that Effexor, which is that first one, I see people get a lot of nausea and have to stop the drug from that. So that was pretty common for that. Dry mouth, dizziness, fatigue, less sexual dysfunction than there were in the other, in the SSRIs, I find. Um, so oftentimes, if that's a big problem for folks, we'll switch over to this class. Um, and then headaches. But again, a lot of those headaches often go away, um, particularly in the newer versions of the drugs. So the first one is Effexor. Um, many doses, kind of like Zoloft, where you can kind of go up originally. It came out with more extended versions as things went, went, went along. It's considered weight neutral. Headaches and GI side effects um, sometimes preclude its use. Um, so yeah, I've had to stop several people on it. And then if you get up on too high of doses, we notice that people's blood pressure goes up. And that's probably because of that norepinephrine, that adrenaline type uh, nature of that drug is causing some of that blood pressure to go up. And where I use it probably more than anything is off-label. I mean, it, when off-label means something that's not FDA-approved for, but we use. So off-label indication um, is for hot flashes in women going through menopause. Um, it works well. 
Um, and especially when 10, 12, 15 years ago, whenever the hormones replacement kind of fell out of favor, um, we started using more of this to kind of help women with the debilitating symptoms they were having. Uh, Cymbalta uh, initially was for depression and anxiety. And then what they found, it was very fascinating when they started using Cymbalta, people, they do these studies that cracks me up. So when you, when, you, when you hear on television, they come out with a new drug and they say, you know, headache, fatigue, your head could fall off, you're going to crash, you know. Yeah, so they kind of let people go home on these, when they're on a, one of these experiments and they kind of have a notepad and they said, what feelings have you felt today? And they're like, I felt cold. So cold. Yeah. So all these things kind of get put on there. So, you know, they kind of report back. So that's where all these lists and lists of side effects come from. So what they noticed, though, in people is that their pain scores, meaning what they rated their pain at on a daily basis, was actually less on Cymbalta, which I think was an unexpected finding for them. But that kind of opened up a new window for Cymbalta. And so you'll see providers using Cymbalta for fibromyalgia, which we'll talk a bit about, um, peripheral neuropathy, which is nerve pain, the, the nerves in the feet, if you think about diabetics who get the really bad burning pain in their feet, oftentimes will be on Cymbalta. It helps decrease that pain. Arthritis pain often is treated with Cymbalta. Chronic pain syndromes just in general. And the last one is the Pristique. Um, that's the daughter product of effects or less side effects. Was more expensive. Recently became generic. Um, I use it a lot. I think it's a good option for folks um, because of the limited side effects. I want to at least mention one you'll see some folks on called Wellbutrin. Um, it's kind of a bit in a class by itself, and it has a lot of different uses. It, for people that have some of the sexual side effects, this can improve some of the sexual side effects, kind of all of them. So we'll often add that on as a little boost. It, uh, it, there's a weight loss in it. It's actually in some of the weight loss products. Actually, some of the marketed weight loss products have Wellbutrin in it. You have to watch for fast heart rate or um, increasing seizure threshold. So somebody who has a seizure disorder, I wouldn't put on a medicine like Wellbutrin because it can raise that threshold. And it's also used in uh, stopping smoking in a medicine called Zyban. About 38% of people have been able to stop smoking by going on a medicine like Wellbutrin. So you will see that one. And then you just may see these names, Vibrid, Trintelex. Those are new. Think about people who've had really tough-to-treat depression. We don't put people on those. They're just hugely expensive, or they're seeing a psychiatrist. Um, because they're very expensive, and it's, those are usually if someone's failed multiple things. So good luck to you if you, that's your counselee. Um, Abilify, if you see that one, that's sometimes added on as well. Um, it, there's a lot of weight gain that happens with Abilify. So again, that one's one that I, I hate to use. I don't typically add it on. It is an antipsychotic, but it's been found to help um, improve uh, in depression as well. But I usually leave that up to the psychiatrist if we're going to do that. And the last group of depression medicines I want to at least mention that you might see, again, this is in your handout, is the tricyclic antidepressants. These are old. This is 1950s. This was great-grandma. Um, where you see it now is in very specific places, but they are considered antidepressants. And I have to explain to my patients when I use them, look, this is an antidepressant, but I'm not using it for depression in you. This is for prevention of headaches or for sleep. The ones you would mostly see are amitriptyline, which is the top one, or Elevil nortriptyline, which is Pamelor, and doxepin. The other ones at the bottom, we use amipramine in kids for bedwetting because the side effect is to decrease, um, you know, a lot of fluids. So, um, but the top three are the ones um, that you might see. Generally, they're rarely used um, for depression. Let's see. Um, a lot of it's because they're side effects. Fatigue, dry mouth, weight gain, constipation, heart rate elevations, increased seizure thresholds. We use these at tiny doses for 
headache prevention or pain relief or that sort of thing. They used it like 10 times the dose in depression back in the 50s. I don't know how these people walked around. I mean, it, it would, I mean, we use these for sleep. And so at 10 milligrams, they were using it at 150 back in the day when they didn't have anything better. So I don't know how people walked around. All right, we're going to go back to our case. So Mary, 44, three children, was on Prozac, okay? She's doing well. She's in a great marriage. Things are going well. She's been in counseling, had some breakthroughs in counseling. Um, the doctor said, hey, what do you think? Is it time to go off? They talked about it. She's, she's fearful. She's back with you for counseling. So maybe a minute or two, just talk to your neighbors and um, how do you counsel her? What heart issues do you, do you address? And I'll stop you in a minute or two. So turn to your neighbors. Okay, I'm going to cut you off. I enjoyed one time we did this and I went around listening and I was like, oh, that's really good. Oh, oh that's really good. So I'm sure you guys had some, had some great things. I want to talk about two other conditions tonight before we leave. If I can get this to go. There we go. So anxiety, generalized anxiety. When somebody has anxiety, again, phrases, give me, give me words. What do you think about? What's it look like? Nervous, worried, panicky, anxious, fearful, irrational. Yeah, I think those are good. I think you hit a lot of them. Um, so this, you know, this guy choking, rapid heartbeat, wobbly legs, that's often that panicky sort of. I mean, that's pretty easy to notice if people are having panic disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is a little different. Um, it's that excessive worry most days for six months across many areas of life, okay? So this is people that are characterized by, it's not just a stressful event they went through and they're having two weeks of trouble. This is somebody who you look back at least six months and they are the, the worriers that they think about this and worry about that and anxious about that and can't, you know, can't focus. So they have a really difficult trouble controlling that. And they have to have three of the following six, six symptoms. Restlessness, they're on edge, 
Um, they're easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating, blank mind, irritability, muscle tension. You know, they're just, they're tight. They have trouble sleeping, hard to get to sleep, stay asleep. They can't turn off their brain. Can you see how some of that mirrors in with depression as well? So we often see depression and anxiety kind of together. And in fact, a lot of the medications are used to treat the same, same thing because that, that process, I think of it as flip sides of the coin chemically that we're affecting some people one way and one or the other, but that anxiety component really fits in with depression for some folks. So further on that definition, um, the focus of the anxiety and the worry is not confined to other primary psychiatric dose, diagnoses like panic attacks. You know, that's the person who goes out and their heart's, heart's beating and think they're having a heart attack, they can't go out in the public. Um, OCD, you know, the obsessions and compulsions where they want to wash all the time because they, you know, they're obsessed that everything's dirty. Anorexia nervosa, which are your sleeping, uh, uh, eating disorders. So it, it, these have significant distresses in social, occupational, or other areas of functioning, and it's not related to substances nor related to other medical diagnoses like hyperthyroidism. I mean, that's one we don't want to miss. Where hypothyroidism, medically, it's not as big of a deal. Hyperthyroidism can be lethal if you don't, if you don't catch it. So. so what are the anxiety medicines? Well, we just went through a lot of them. I use SSRIs and SNRIs and anxiety a, a lot. Um, there are other providers who are going to use some of these others that I don't, and we'll talk about them. And I want, if you could take away one other big point tonight, it's going to be about benzodiazepines. This is important. Um, so if, this is the one thing on the anxiety I'm going to want you to remember if you, have, if you have counselees that are on benzos, okay? Antihistamines and buspar are the other. So let's go ahead and talk about the benzodiazepines. So that's Valium. You know, grandma, was, grandma was taking her Valium. Um, it's still around. Ativan is kind of a newer, it's, it's newer in the past probably 20, 30 years compared to Valium. Uh, Xanax, Xanax is very short-acting on and short-acting off. So it comes on very quickly and it doesn't last as long as some of the other ones. Sometimes there's a little bit of a, too much of a hit in that that people like. Um, so we have to be careful. And then Clonopin is a long-acting benzodiazepine. Okay, so people will take that maybe one or two times a day. Um, I don't use them. Um, if I do, it's on a very, very, very select few folks. And I, part of it is they're very sedating and they're very mood-altering if given at too much. So when you, I don't know if you think about all the overdoses of you here of the celebrities on TV. A lot of times there'll be Xanax or Valium in their system as well as heroin. Um, tolerance can develop. They tend to addiction. They can cause withdrawal, seizures, and death by stopping abruptly. Somebody who's on tons of Xanax... Okay, they're taking two milligrams five times a day, and they come off, can go through serious withdrawal. So this is the point I want you to know, that if your counselee comes to you who's on a medicine like this and says, I stopped this today, you need to say, oh, no, you know, because this, this can be very serious, okay? They work on similar receptors in the brain, the GABA receptors part of the brain, as alcohol does. So think alcohol withdrawal, similar type of withdrawal, similar type of risk. Where tranquilizers do come in, I mean, that's, that's another name for these tranquilizers. You know, they do help people um, with insomnia and short bursts. Where I use them, honestly, somebody's going on a trip over to uh, Europe and they, you know, wanted five tablets to kind of regulate their sleep. I'll use their, somebody's getting in the MRI scanner. Anybody have an MRI? It's like 
getting in the coffin a little bit. You know, so they take that before that. So those issues, somebody, or they had a, their spouse passed away and they're just really struggling for a few days. So I use them in very set, confined places because it's just very risky. Um, also, Atarax, um, Vistril, those are both hydroxazine. They're types of antihistamines that have sometimes the ability to, to calm people down. So we use those. Benadryl doesn't often work as well, but that can help calm people down as well, unless you're that 10 to 15% of people who have the reverse effect. Does anybody have that, where they feel like their skin's they're crawling out of their skin? Yeah, so you have to watch it if that's you. And again, those aren't addictive, so I don't feel as bad about those. And Buspar is another one I use. Buspar is a short-acting, non-addictive. I'm not worried about if they're driving on Buspar. Buspar can be taken as needed. It's not hugely effective, but it's safe. And for certain people who are dealing with anxiety and depression, and I've started them on a medication, I'll sometimes throw Buspar in just to kind of help get, bridge the gap till the other medicines start to work. Um, but again, very safe, uh, very cheap. And last in this category would be the insomnia medicines. I just throw two up here, trazodone. You'll see a lot of people on trazodone. Trazodone is used for sleep mainly. It's an old antidepressant as well. It really doesn't, wasn't very good for depression, but it does a good job for sleep. So we use it a lot, um, non-addictive. There are some interesting um, side effects you can read about uh, for your men patients. Just uh, You're not going to prescribe it, but just to be aware of. Um, Ambien, anybody heard of Ambien, taken Ambien? Um, it's very effective. I mean, it's... But it's also very addictive if you use it every day. I do have a couple people who have a crippling insomnia that nothing else has ever worked, and I've kept them on Ambien. I don't like it, but um, they do. I, I find Ambien best used kind of more on an as-needed basis, you know, going through seasons of trouble sleeping and that sort of thing because, again, dependence. And people do weird things on Ambien. They walk outside, and they go down and eat half the... Half the um, the refrigerator out and they don't remember it. It's, it's very weird. So, yeah, they punch their spouse in the middle of the night. Yeah. yeah, but you can feel very drugged and tired if you take too high of a dose in the, in the morning. All right, so case two, Ron. He was the uh, 32 single guy, newer believer, um, has a hard time turning off his brain, used to drink alcohol, um, stopped, felt convicted by that, recently put on some Xanax, which you're going to find there are many providers who feel perfectly fine about using these medicines all the time. I just happen not to be one of them um, because I just, I, I'm a little worried about what they're doing because they're just, you're in a bit of a fog sometimes and, and there's a little bit of loss of reality at times. So his physicians put him on Xanax. Um, he was taking it every few days, but now he's taking it up to three times a day. He says, it really helps. He looks pretty droopy-eyed, almost nods off, speech is slow, drove himself to you. What do you address and where in scripture do you take him? All right, a couple minutes.
Okay, I'm going to cut you off. Good stuff. Last thing I want to talk about as far as diagnoses tonight is fibromyalgia. Um, there's been a lot of debate on fibromyalgia in the past on the diagnosis itself. Initially, everybody thought this is truly and only um, psychological in nature. And then there were some that felt, no, it was only um, physical in nature. And I think probably it's, it's going to come out that it's somewhat both. Or it's, there's certain, certain people that tend towards having, having both. Um, and then there are certain, I mean, there are doctors who don't even use it as a diagnosis at all. But I think it's a helpful diagnosis um, to bring in a lot of symptoms for, for patients that they can have something to grab onto. So the long and short of it, pain for at least three months, not explained by their diagnoses, multiple trigger points and tender points. So if you, if you touch somebody with fibromyalgia, so you touch yourselves here, just kind of feel right here. Now you may feel a little tenderness there anyway. Some people do. The tender points up in the neck, kind of down the back, down the spine, into the lower back, kind of right here. They're going to feel tender here at the shoulders on the sides, the elbows, the knees, the hips. So those are the, the tender trigger points that we're feeling on these people. And I tell you, people with bad fibromyalgia, you touch them anywhere and they're, they're about to you know, jump out of their skin because it's just painful to them. They have severe, uh, severe fatigue, poor sleep, and then all of the above really makes them anxious about it because they're just very worried about it. Um, so what are the medicines that are often used to treat fibromyalgia? So the SSRI, in the past, we used medicines like Zoloft and a medicine like Trazodone for sleep. Um, and then we told them to go exercise. There's three FDA-approved medications for fibromyalgia now. I find them really not tolerated by most of my patients that I've tried them on, uh, particularly the second two. Cymbalta, I can get people to try and take. But Savella, you may see people on that. But again, I just haven't had many people tolerate the side effects with constipation and dizziness, insomnia, sweats, palpitations. And then Lyrica is expensive. It causes swelling in the legs and weight gain. Um, it causes them to be drowsy. So I just don't find people uh, taking that most. Where I really go with fibromyalgia is um, I've seen more improvements in people in their pain levels and fatigue from regular exercise than anything else. That's the last thing they want to do. It really is because they hurt. But that's where I find the most success is if I can get them out swimming. Swimming is a nice thing for their joints often because they just have joint pain. Um, if I can get them on a recumbent bike or an, or an elliptical, um, that's if I can get them there. Because if they can do it, and they can do it on a regular basis, and we can somehow get them sleeping better, I often see their pain scores much better. So that's where I focus most of my energy. Um, so those healthy lifestyle changes, that's, I think, more probably where I'm going to get more success. Unfortunately, fibromyalgia, I see two groups of people. Um, there's those that just seem really bogged down in their fatigue, pain, depression, and anxiety. They continue to want to do testing, seeking out new treatments, and doctor shopping. It takes a while to often get to this diagnosis just because as a physician, you're, you're, I mean, these people are just down for the count, and you want to make sure you're not missing anything, but oftentimes, you, you know, this is normal, and this is normal, and this is normal, and they have all those tender places, and sometimes we just say, look, I think we're, I think we're done. Medically, I can't find anything that we're going to be able to do differently for you here. Let's work on, you know, this healthy lifestyle. And I think that's where you guys as counselors, that's where I think your, your hope for them is going to be in focus, you know, in your time in the word with them is focusing on those, you know, healthy lifestyles. So where I like is that patient that comes and says, praise God, there's nothing else. 
I can live with that and I can move on and exercise, but unfortunately that's um, not, not the norm. So the last case, um, Shelly's 52, divorced, uh, been in counseling for the past four months. Rocky married her 24 years, um, and recently her husband left her. She's had fatigue for 15 years. She's had a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. She's come to you for counseling. Um, it just seems like in your counseling, she's always going back to the suffering, going back to the suffering, going back to the pain. And then she tells you, you just can't understand. What do you say? All right, a couple minutes. All right, I'm going to cut you off. Thanks, guys. So I'm going to leave you with just, um, you have this in your handout as well, the take-home points that I just want you to remember. The first one, most antidepressants need several weeks to build up, and also if they come off, they need several weeks to kind of come down. Abruptly stopping benzodiazepines is dangerous. All right, that's the biggest thing. Think alcohol withdrawal. This can be very dangerous. Sexual side effects are common. If you're dealing with couples, and if you go to that place, which I think, you know, you might at least discuss it in general terms, you need to know that this may be interrupting. Um, direct your counselee to their medical psychiatric, psychiatric provider if they want to try to stop their medication. I just think that's the safest. Um, just having that tandem relationship with their provider. And then don't forget about the physical exam for workups. So I asked, I polled my, I'm just going to leave you with a couple questions. I polled my more seasoned counselors and said, hey, if you could have to ask a couple questions, because I know in a setting like this it would be a little hard, what would you want to ask about medications? So one question that came, what do you tell believers that you put on depression or anxiety medications about the medications? I like that question because we have a great talk about it, I think. You know, I have folks who feel really bad about wanting to be on medication. They think they failed as a believer. Um, they've tried, you know, they've been in the Word. Or they've, been, they've tried to be in the Word. They've tried to pray. They've tried to pull themselves up by their bootstrap. They're doing all the right things, and they're still having trouble. And I see this on the anxiety realm as well, particularly in anxiety. So it's the person that goes to pray, and they start, and their mind's off. And then they go to read the word, and they read three words, and then their mind's off. And they, they just, 
there is not effectual time in prayer and there's not effectual time in the word. So I kind of approach them and say, look, as a means of grace, God has given us medication that may help you in that process so that your time in the word is more effectual, so that your time in prayer is more effectual, so that that, that time with your, counselee, with your counselor may be more helpful as they can guide you and teach you. So I think for some people that's just a... They just kind of feel like, oh, okay, and it's okay. And I try to tell them, it's okay. It's not our answer. As a believer, it's not your answer, but it may be some help. Um, so I always, I always like that when I can hopefully offer a little bit of grace to that person who's just struggling, thinking, I can't believe I have to take this medication. And then there were a couple others, but we're at 8.30. So um, I enjoyed talking with you guys. Let me Thank you for letting me come and... Um, I, a lot of you are from here, feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions uh, on, with your counselees on medications or even diagnosis that they might have had, if I can help you. Again, I'm not a psychiatrist, but enough dealing with some of these things that I could hopefully be able to help you guide you in the right way. So thanks a lot.